Well, hello, hello. Welcome to the Health Detective Podcast, a show dedicated to uncovering health truths for your body, mind, and soul. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren, former TV news journalist on health detective and functional medicine expert by way of my own 25 plus years of clinical and personal experience in solving health mysteries in order to help people just like you take their health back into their own hands. On this show, we're all about quieting the noise in the health, food, and wellness world. And you'll eavesdrop on real talk topics and conversations with both myself and a variety of interesting guests who are all health detectives in their own unique way. If you're liking the show, please don't hesitate to leave a review. I absolutely love hearing from you and it helps us get the word out to other health detectives just like you. And if you need anything whatsoever, you have a podcast idea or you need help taking your own health back in your own hands, you can find me over at my website, drlauren.com. That's D-R-L-A-U-R-Y-N.com. Absolutely love hearing from you over there. All right, without further ado, let's get to the show. Welcome to the Heal Your Root podcast, where we talk about working with your body, not against it. And today, super honored to have Dr. Anita Johnston in the house, who is a clinical psychologist and certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor. She's worked in the field of women's issues and eating disorders for over 35 years and is a woman that I consider just a mentor in a way for my work as well in the recovery space. And her work and specifically her book, Eating in Light of the Moon, is something that I share with all of my patients that have histories of disordered eating, funky relationship with food, just not understanding the why behind why their habits with food, restrictive, binging, purging, etc., show up. And uh, Dr. Johnston's work just really brings to light that food is often, again, a metaphor for other things in our lives. And so today we're going to have just a really good conversation about understanding a little bit more about our why. And Dr. Johnston, thanks so much for coming on. If you could just give us a little bit of background. I know we've had you on the show previously and a couple of years ago, but just bring our listeners up to speed with What got you doing the work you're doing in the world? And we'll go from there. Okay. Well, first off, thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. Mm -hmm. I always enjoy our conversations. And let's see, it's a long story, right? Because I've been doing this a long time. What got me into the field? And basically, way back when, and we're talking, you know, in the early 1980s. So this was a long time ago. And I was supervising a psychology intern that was studying the incidence of eating disorders in Hawaii. And we were meeting with a third person who had had her own recovery experience, but she had to figure it all out herself. And every time we got together, we kept saying, oh my gosh, there's a lot of people that are struggling. There should be a center for this. And after we said that for about the fifth time, (laughs) we looked at each other and we laughed and we said, okay, Yes, we got to do it. So it was one of those things you created and they come and they did. Back then, only females were showing up. And so there were girls and women of all ages, all ethnicities, all sizes, all struggling with some kind of eating or body image issue. And so I was pretty curious about this at the time because there really wasn't a lot of research back then. There certainly wasn't a lot of treatment available. So I was trying to solve this mystery. Uh, First of all, why was it females that were showing up? Second of all, 
Why was it these particular girls and women? And third, why was the struggle around eating and food and body? And so I'm a storyteller, but as a psychologist, I'm also a trained story listener. So I thought, okay, I'm going to listen to their stories and see if I can figure this out. See if I can find what's the common denominator. What is it that links them all? Because they're in many other areas of their life, there was so much diversity. And what I found was this, they were like the child in the fairy tale, The Emperor's New Clothes. In that story, you have this really vain emperor and he doesn't care much about ruling his kingdom. He's mostly interested in fine clothing and jewelry. And he has quite a reputation for this. And so a couple of con artists come into town and they pretend to be tailors. And they say, oh yeah, our clothing is so fine. Only those fit for their station and life can even see it. Well, the emperor was impressed. And so he commissioned them to create a whole new wardrobe for himself. And of course, the con artists, they pretended to cut and stitch cloth that really wasn't there. But all the people who worked for the emperor went on and on about the magnificent clothing. And even the emperor himself was carrying on and telling everyone how wonderful his new outfits were because he didn't want people to think that he wasn't fit for his station in life. And so eventually the con artists, they leave town and there's this grand procession now where the emperor's going to wear his new outfits. But of course, he's totally naked. But everyone in the crowd is ooing and aahing and carrying on about the magnificent clothing. But there's a child in the crowd that says in a very loud voice, but mommy, the emperor has no clothes on at all. And when this child spoke, it created a ripple throughout the crowd and everyone saw the emperor, the fool that he was. What I found was that these girls and women were like that child in that they had an uncanny ability to perceive subtle realities that sometimes others couldn't see. And what I mean by that is they could read between the lines, they could see the bigger picture, they could perceive hypocrisy, they could sense when things weren't okay, even if everyone around them said things were just fine. But because their lives weren't fairy tales, what would happen is when they spoke up about what they were seeing, they were either ridiculed or ignored or rejected or in some cases abused. And so what they had to do is they had to find some way to dim their light to diminish this capacity to perceive these subtle realities, to diminish their emotional sensitivity and their intuition. And so somewhere along the line, they discovered that they could do this through food or thoughts about food or thoughts about their body. And so that's pretty much what got the ball rolling for pretty much all of them. So I came to see them as a super emotionally sensitive, highly intuitive individuals that are what I call thin skin, living in the world we live in today, which doesn't value that at all, right? It only values being thick skinned and water for decks back and no big deal. And how come you're so sensitive or you're overreacting, blah, 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 blah. So then like the rest of us, they wanted more than anything else that a child wants, which is a sense of belonging, but they confuse that with fitting in, which is not the same thing. But that began the journey of trying to look like how they thought they were supposed to look and act how they thought they were supposed to act. Yeah. And that's a lot going on. Thank you for explaining that. Just thinking about like the onset of disordered eating or just whether it's binging, purging, restricting... Do you find that the underlying theme is similar for all those? It just manifests 
differently or are there certain themes with? There is this underlying theme of being, you know, super sensitive, but it does display in different ways because of how we interpret what's going on. So for example, someone who's restricting their food, that's not the only thing they're restricting. They're restricting their emotions. They're restricting new experiences. They're restricting intimacy. They're restricting their sexuality. They're putting themselves on restriction that they make a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. So this theme of restriction is everywhere, not just with food. It gets our attention with food because it's very problematic and even life-threatening. But when you see this pattern, it typically comes from feeling like life is too much, so they have to restrict. Someone who's binging and purging or yo-yo dieting, what you see is you see a pattern of taking on or taking in too much too quickly, not being able to assimilate and got to get rid of it. So you may see this may show up like maybe someone takes a whole bunch of classes, signs up for a bunch of classes, gets overwhelmed, and then has to drop out of school. Or maybe they'll meet someone fall madly in love. And as soon as there's the slightest conflict, they end it. Mm -hmm. Or they might take on a ton of projects and then get overwhelmed and just not even be able to do any of them. Or they might meet somebody and that, that person immediately becomes their best, best, best friend. And as soon as there's a flaw, they go, oh, I can't hang out with that person. So there's this tendency to binge and purge all kinds of things. And it's this theme of taking on, like I said, too much, too quickly, and then not being able to handle it and then dropping it all. Someone who's struggling with overeating or binge eating, you're going to find a theme of scarcity. So that it's not just that there's not enough food, but there's not enough time or there's not enough money or there's not enough coffee or there's not enough attention or there's not enough appreciation. And so there's this theme of not enoughness or they feel like they're not enough. And so those are the different ways it can get expressed. But the underlying common theme is I don't experience things the way everybody else says there must be something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And then they go looking for what that might be. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. I would love to know your thoughts. Something that I've been seeing a lot in my practice as a functional medicine practitioner as well is something that we may refer to as ARFID, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. It's like the fear of how food makes you feel more so than like about the food. But with a lot of my patients that maybe have histories of gut dysbiosis, just like gut unrest and like that to maybe they had an autoimmune condition and they had to restrict to five to 10 foods because it's all their body could tolerate at one time. So there's food fears and food reservations that kind of develop and then continue or exacerbate. What do you think is going on there? And what would be the parallels? It fits in this whole idea of this super sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, a lot of people think that it's not a good thing. I happen to believe it is, but it's something you need to work with. And so someone may be super sensitive in terms of their emotions, but also their sensations. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is the feedback from their body can be really intense because they are particularly sensitive to it. Mm-hmm. So I think the idea is learning how to work with it rather than against it, like you said in the beginning, right? So it's like, okay, given this, and yeah, sometimes you may wish I wasn't so sensitive or I didn't have such a strong reaction to this food or that person's anger or whatever it is, but the reality is you do. So now what? 
So it begins with this process of accepting your nature and then learning how to work with it because it is possible to work with it. And not only that, there are amazing gifts that come with this sensitivity. And frankly, I happen to believe, and I believe this with every fiber of my being, that those who struggle with disordered eating in whatever way are the people the world has been waiting for. Because with their sensitivity comes a level of empathy and compassion that the world needs dearly right now. Mm -hmm. Why is society like not encouraging them that? I feel like vulnerability is something that we hear a lot about nowadays. And like, that's like a hot topic. And what's the difference? Yeah. Yeah. Because our culture, first of all, we're so darn literal, right? So we don't understand invisible or non-visible things like emotions, intuitions, even sensations, right? You can maybe point to where you feel that in your body, but it's a sensation. It's not really visible. So as a result, we've not been taught how to work with this. It's kind of a new thing, really. You know, it's like, okay, how do we work with this? This is showing up now in so many fields. Quantum physics tells us the same thing, right? It's like, is it a particle? Is it a wave? Well, it depends on who's looking, right? And so this idea that reality is way, way, way more than what we can perceive with our five senses is fairly new in our Western culture. Modern mystics and the indigenous people understood this, but we're just kind of getting the hang of it. So if it can't be perceived by the five senses, a lot of people say it doesn't exist. That's not real. That's not reality. So how can you teach somebody how to deal with something that's not real in your mind? So I think that's where we're at as a culture. And again, I think those that are struggle, they're at the forefront, whether they like it or not, you're kind of leading the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, little do they know the power within Mm -hmm. until they tap in. So when you're working with your patients and at your center, What is the process? I think I remember you talking about like, you don't really even talk about the eating disorder up front as much as like you talk about stories. Tell us a little bit about the process for leading an individual to come to the awareness for the whys behind Mm -hmm. eating disorder. Or maybe like you just don't talk about food, for example, in your sessions. Well, I do. I think what's important is not just what's going on with food and not just what's going on in the rest of your life, but the connection between the two. Mm -hmm. How do you find that connection? And so that's where I use stories and metaphor, because that is the language we use to see the unseen. There are invisible connections. And the reason why that's important is if you can find that connection, you can disconnect. So, for example, in my treatment center, which is a residential facility in Maui, Aipono, Hawaii, we work with trauma and we work with nutrition and we work with skill building. But then we also help people try to find what's underneath the symptomology. With my online program, Light of the Moon Cafe, that's a course that I created many years ago. And now with COVID, it's been pretty popular because people can't go places. But it's a way to recognize and cultivate your own ability to look at what's going on with you and food metaphorically so you can find the answers. And so I have a couple of interactive courses where they're like eight week courses where we use eating in the light of the moon. It's sort of like a book club or workbook or women's circle. And each week we take a different 
chapter, for example, and every day there's an activity. So it might be me telling a story or it might be some story questions where you get to see how does that story fit from my life and my struggle. And then there might be a poem or drawing or writing activities or an audio of a metaphor or a playlist of songs to listen to. And we have a forum and we have women from all over the world communicating on this forum. And I respond to all the questions and answers. And this goes on every day for eight weeks. And it's really powerful. When women gather and circle in this way, it's amazing what can happen. And the insights that they get, because one person might, you know, say, oh, this reminded me of blah, blah, blah. And someone else would go, oh, my gosh, that's exactly the way I experience it. Or someone else might say, oh, wow, I never thought of it that way. So it's very expansive in terms of understanding. Plus, there's this feeling of being so alone with the struggle that it makes a huge difference when you've got a bunch of folks all kind of on this journey together. So that's a lot of fun for me. I really enjoy doing that. But I do have some self-study courses where, you know, for those that just want to go it alone that are shorter and that are available at any time, the other courses, they begin at a certain time and end at a certain time. But the self-study courses are ones that anyone can take to find out, okay, I you know, tend to binge on chocolate chip cookie ice cream. What is that about? And so I have a quiz that anyone can take for free. You just go to lightofthemooncafe.com and you can find out what your different foods might mean for you. And then if someone is really interested in exploring it, there's a little course they can take to help them decode what's going on with them and food and how come. Yeah. I would love to know if there's any anecdotal stories that you have from your time of like women that have had epiphanies that through the work that you've done with them and the parallels that it was showing up in other ways in their lives. Yeah, so many. Because at the end of the course, I get all these emails from people. Mm. And so I think a lot of the responses, wow, I had no idea. And I had no idea the answers were inside of me. I just didn't know how to look for them. And so I think that's the thing that people find most liberating, that there's so much meaning behind what they're doing with food is not just some stupid habit that they can't seem to break, right? Or it's not that, oh, there's something wrong with them and they're damaged in some way. It's like, there's a powerful reason for whatever, actually multiple ones for whatever they're doing with food. And then the other thing is they're rather astounded that there's some skills that they can learn because they got to learn how to be a thin skinned person in a thick skinned world, right? Mm-hmm. But there's skills that, and that's all they are. You don't need special DNA. It's like learning to ride a bike or, or drive a car or swim. You know, it does take some practice, but you can do it. So I think those are the stories that I hear. And I'm talking about people that are 60 years old, and this is the first time they're breaking free of this struggle. I'm talking about people that have been hospitalized multiple, multiple times for severe eating disorders, and they've been able to free themselves from this. I'm talking about people that have been in all kinds of different programs, whether everything from Weight Watchers to Overeaters Anonymous or whatever, and felt like they were able to make a little bit of headway, but but then everything would just come crumbling down and they were able to break free. So I've seen thousands of people totally, completely recover. It's a real thing. 
But first of all, you need to understand what it's doing for you, not just to you, but for you. And then what are the skills that you need in order basically to put the disordered eating out of a job? It has a job to do. And it's going to keep doing its job until you cultivate the skills so it doesn't have anything to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something I talk a lot about with my patients is the different heart hungers that we have too, mm-hmm. and understanding mm-hmm. what those are, and like mm-hmm. kind of like you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, self actualization is at the top, and then we have mm-hmm. fundamental needs. But I see even more so there's certain needs that aren't always met that we try to meet through food. For example, like a need for certainty or control, a need for actually variety or change, needs for significance. I would love to know if there's any themes that you have seen of like heart hungers that we try to meet maybe with food or with habits around food exercise. So that's where I think a lot of people are confused. And the metaphor I like to use is of two tanks. So imagine that you have two tanks and we're going to call them tank A and tank B. (laughs) Tank A is the tank you fill when you need physical nourishment and you fill it with food. Tank B is the tank you fill when you need emotional or spiritual nourishment and you fill it with things like attention, affection, appreciation, meditation, prayer, and so on. What you call the heart hungers. I call them soul hungers. But we don't know this. We think there's just one tank. So before we know it, either tank A is full and overflowing and we're still hungry or we don't even want to get close to tank A. We're terrified of it because it seems like the bottomless pit. And so what has to happen is you have, the first step is to learn how to tease the two tanks apart. And the way you do that is probably something you're very familiar with and teach is interoceptive awareness, right? Mm -hmm. Learning to read your body sensations, your hunger and satiety as physical sensations in your body rather than as some vague concept. I feel like pizza is not a physical sensation, right? So learning those sensations of physical hunger and satiety are an important part of teasing these two tanks apart. But what happens is, so let's imagine, let's say that you've learned it, you've nailed it, you know exactly what your physical sensation of hunger is and where in your body you feel it and what fullness is. But you're reaching for the pizza and you check in not a hunger signal in sight, right? So you know, this is not tank A. You know you have just tumbled down Alice in Wonderland's rabbit hole and landed smack dab in tank B. And in tank B, food is not food. Pizza is not pizza. What is it? It's a concrete physical symbol of another kind of hunger that you're experiencing and may not even know about. So the question you ask yourself at that point is, okay, what's the feeling I'm trying not to feel? Because we don't eat for emotional reasons. We don't restrict because we're stressed. We restrict or we eat because we don't want to feel our emotions because they're maybe too scary or overwhelming or too painful or whatever. But you do the first question is, okay, what's the feeling I'm trying not to feel? And you do a scan of your day and you go, okay, am I still ticked off at that jerk that cut me off on the freeway? Or am I concerned about this upcoming parent-teacher meeting? Or am I worried about a comment my boss made? Or am I irritated with something that my sister said? Or whatever, you do a scan. But most of the time, what happens is when you say, okay, what's the feeling I'm trying not to feel? The answer is, "Mm, I don't know. I feel fine. Everything's okay. 
right? Because it's unconscious, it's out of our awareness. So the good news is the food will tell you. The very foods that you're wanting to binge on or restrict are actually talking to you, but they're talking in code. They're using metaphoric, symbolic language, just like our dreams do, right? Our dreams are talking to us. We think, oh my God, I had a crazy dream. Well, yeah, all dreams are crazy because they're not talking the language we're used to talking, Mm -hmm. but they're speaking. And so these very foods are telling you some important information, but it's coded. And in order to understand what they're saying, you have to crack the code. And the way you crack the code is by understanding just a little bit. I'll give your listeners some clues, but understanding we're all different, but this is a way you can get started. So sweet foods usually have to do with either feeling like there's not enough sweetness in your life or you're not sweet enough. Crunchy, salty foods are typically associated with unexpressed anger and frustration. Uh, It's not like there's anything wrong with the feeling itself, but when it's not expressed, this can generate, if you think of crunchy, salty, you know, you really want to bite some, bite into something. Soups and stews, warm foods typically have to do with a craving for emotional warmth. Spicy foods, either a fear of or a craving for, have to do with excitement, stimulation and change. And chocolate Well, we know this from Valentine's Day, right? Romance, love, sensuality, sexuality. And so working with these categories, you can really discover a lot. So for example, I have, uh, oh, by the way, if any of your listeners, I have a free PDF about this that you can download. All they have to do is go to lightofthemooncafe.com forward slash BTR. For break the rules, right? Oh, yay. Awesome. I <laughs> love easy that. to remember. Yeah. And anyhow, so for example, I was working with a client. She was struggling with bulimia. And I said to her, I said, okay, if there were one food that you wished you could eat and there were no consequences, zero consequences whatsoever, what would that be? And she said, oh, that's easy. Vanilla ice cream with strawberries on top. And I said, okay, I want you to imagine I've never had vanilla ice cream, strawberries on top. And you're going to tell me what's so fabulous about it. And she said, well, it's sweet, it's smooth, and it's refreshing. Now, when we took a look at what was going on in her life, her boyfriend was accusing her of not being sweet enough. She'd hit a really rough patch with her parents and was desperately wanting things to smooth out. And she was in a dead end job in need of a refreshing change. So here's one food and all this material to work with. So that's kind of how it works. And it works for all of us, actually, providing you are either reaching for food and you're not hungry or you're not letting yourself eat when you are hungry. Mm -hmm. That's when it's coded information. What if an individual never feels hunger? That point if they don't feel hungry, so they're in that restriction. As well as like even exercise or eating through exercise in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, if you never have felt hunger, basically that goes back to teasing the two tanks apart and really learning sensation. Um, Because for whatever reason, you learn to ignore those sensations in the body. And so you might want to play with eating just two bites at a time. 
tuning into your body, looking for sensation. Okay, what am I feeling? And the kinds of sensations you would be looking for. You see, most people that are struggling, if I say, what's the sensation you feel when you're hungry and where in your body do you feel it? They'll say, oh, I get lightheaded and dizzy and my stomach growls really loudly. Not, that's not hunger. That's famished. And what's going to happen if you wait to eat until you're famished? You're going to want to eat everything you can get your hands on. The sensation of hunger is way, way more subtle. It's a whisper, not a shout. So people maybe don't know how to listen to the whispers. Or for example, someone might say, I would say, what's the sensation for fullness? And they go, it's hard to breathe or I have to unbuckle my belt. Not, that's not fullness, that's stuffed. Again, we're looking for very subtle whispers. And so if someone says, I don't know what hunger feels like, I would play with it. I would eat two bites at a time, check in, and then do a scan inside your body. Where do you feel a contraction or an expansion, a heaviness, a lightness, a roughness, a smoothness, a hollowness, a density, a warmth, a coolness? We're looking for sensation. So that's kind of how I would work with that. The sensations, they're quiet. They're not loud. Yeah. Something that I see, I do a lot of work with gut health and Uh a lot of constipation, a lot of bloating and like with Uh constipation, I call it mindset constipation. A lot of times like we can feel super weighed down in other areas or heavy in our lives. And so see that symptomology um, as well as like bloating, overwhelm, basically feeling bloated in other areas. And do you see, I mean, I think the gut and eating disorder recovery goes really hand in hand. And would love to know just from your perspective, what you see with gut symptomology and resolve. Yeah, they're not disconnected. We know, right? And so sometimes it's hard to ferret that out. The way I see it is I'm the expert on eating disorders, for example, and you're the expert on gut health, but they're the experts on themselves. They're the experts on their bodies. And so It's really a matter of putting on your detective hat or your scientist hat or where you're looking for clues and you're trying to solve this mystery. But for example, let's say someone who has a pattern of restricting, they've restricted for a long time. What's going to happen when they first start eating? And we see this a lot at Aipono in Hawaii when people start refeeding, for example, they get this sensation of poochie, you know, right? Where where your belly feels poochie. And that's because we know that the intestines and the stomach, they're muscles. And like all muscles, they get strengthened by working out, right? It's just like if you go to the gym and if you don't, they start to atrophy. And so what can happen is that when there's this atrophy because the muscles haven't been worked because they haven't been moving food through them, they get weakened. And unfortunately, you can't go to the gym to work out your intestines. It is a matter of moving through an uncomfortable phase in order to get more toned in that area, if you will. But it should be a phase, a temporary phase, not ongoing. So that's where you start really paying attention. Okay, how long is this uncomfortable sensation lasting? And you really start exploring it in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just curiosity more than anything. It Mm -hmm. sounds in reflection Mm -hmm. as a big part of 
the mastery of it. Yeah. Curiosity, not judgment. You see, here's where things go wrong is the judgment. Because when you're trying to solve a mystery, you need to have all the clues open until you know what you're doing and where you're going. And so it's sort of like when you speak to yourself in a judgmental way, what's wrong with me? I should be over this already. I'm sick and tired of this. I'm not getting it right. I'll never do this. All that kind of judgment just slams the door to communication shut. The door that you have to keep open in order to understand what's going on with your body, understand what's going on with your psyche. So it's just like if you said to a little kid, why'd you do that? You're not going to get an honest answer. They're going to tell you whatever they think you want to hear, right? But if you ask that exact same question with curiosity, not judgment, huh, why'd you do that? The answer you get may amaze you. And so it is in our relationship with ourselves. And it's hard because we are taught to judge ourselves. And we begin this process of judgment often when we're quite little. So it does require working at clearing the judgments. And so in the beginning, why just starting to notice them? Notice when you are judging yourself. And then as soon as you notice a judgment, imagine what you would say to your child or your very best friend or a niece or nephew, someone you really care about. If they were having the same experience, if they had made the same mistake, if they if that was what was going on with them, what would you say? And just imagine what you would say because the chances are it would not be mean. It would not be judgmental. It would be compassionate. It would be kind. What would you say? And then you let it go and you wait for the next judgment because there's a lot. But each time you observe a judgment and let it go, it's kind of like weeding a garden. In the beginning, if you get to a garden that's not been tended to, it just seems, oh my God, we'll never get through this. But little by little, eventually you do. It's not like there won't be new weeds coming up. There will. There will be new judgments coming up. We live in a judgmental culture. It's just, it's going to happen. But it's like if it's just an occasional thing, then it's no big deal. You just weed it out. Mm-hmm. But it is a process. And oh, the most important thing about this process is you can't judge yourself for judging yourself. <laughs> That's what happens sometimes. Yeah. Get all tripped up there. Well, mm-hmm. well, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for coming on. And where can people find more? I know you've mentioned several times throughout, but um, where can people find more about you and your work and then also your groups, etc.? They can go to DrAnitaJohnston.com. So that's D-R-A-N-I-T-A-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N.com or LightOfTheMoonCafe.com. Perfect. I'll put those links in the show notes. And thank you again so much for coming on and helping us uh, break some rules as well. (laughs) My pleasure. That's one of my favorite things to do. Me too. (laughs) We'll be keeping up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 